When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Meet Me in the Morning, 56th and Wabasha. Meet Me in the Morning, 56th and Wabasha. Honey, we could be in Kansas by the time the snow begins to thaw. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about Meet Me in the Morning, the opening track from side two of the masterpiece, Blood on the Tracks, is fellow Bobcat, Tom Urrutia. Hi, Tom. Hi, Rob. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, man. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this one. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of amazing. I, I remember that like we have not gotten to all the songs on Blood on the Tracks yet, even though we're 230 episodes into the show. I'm kind of amazed at that sometimes. I think I forget, you know, and then you pointed out to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, we haven't we haven't done Mimi in the Morning yet. Well, that's Bob for you. I mean, he's gotten so many songs in his career, I mean, more than you can shake a stick at, that it's only natural for you to just assume that, oh, yeah, we've totally talked about that one. And then you look at the full list and be like, oh, we haven't. So yeah, when nope. I saw that list of all the songs you have covered and saw that one, I immediately just seized the opportunity. Absolutely. So I'm going to say right at the top, before we get into your history with Bob, uh, Tom, I'm going to say to everybody, of course, if you are a Bob fan uh, of a certain uh, point, you know that uh, this song has a lot of similarities with another Bob song, Call Letter Blues. In fact, some people want to think Call Letter Blues is kind of the early version of this song. And we debated whether to lump both songs in in one episode or keep them separate. And I ultimately made the decision because I want to give Call Letter Blues its own time because I think that song, even though uh, the tune is quite literally the same, it's the same backing track that mm-hmm. Dylan used for the, the that song for then for this song. I feel like that song has its own concerns. It has its own, you know, topics of discussion. And I feel like it deserves its own episode. So while we inevitably are going to bring it up in this show, because how can you not? Uh, ultimately, Call Letter Blues is going to get its own episode. So we will kind of, quote unquote, just be talking about the myriad versions of Meet Me in the Morning for this episode. Just want to let everybody know right at the top of the show. So um, as we said, Tom, since this is your first appearance on Pod Dylan, uh, how did you become a fan of Bob? So um, I actually did not grow up listening to Bob Dylan. I think I was vaguely aware of him, but growing up as a kid, I was definitely a Beatles fan. And I still am to this day. Like, uh hardcore, um, diehard fan. Um, but Bob came into, um, my music learning, I guess you could say, um, about 2007, because in 2007, me being the big Beatles fan that I am, the traveling Wilburys albums were getting, um, reissued because they've been out of print for, you know, many, many years. Unbelievably. They've been out of, they were out of print. It was kind of crazy, especially with the lineup like that. Yeah. You think they would those albums would just be in the public at all times at any Tom given Petty, moment. Bob Dylan, and a Beatle is not enough to keep it keep those in print. <laughs> right. And um, so, you know, me being the Beatles fan that I, you know, was and still am, I of course wanted to hear about the Charlie Wilbury since George Harrison uh was a member. And so, you know, the reissue comes out in 2007, and I immediately, you know, want to listen to it. And I love the music that I'm curious to hear what the other members sound like, you know, on their own, Tom Petty, Jeff Lynn with electric light orchestra, Roy Orbison, and of course, Bob Dylan. 
And I did like the songs that Dylan brought to the Wilburys, especially the ones that he sings um, lead on. I mean, they mostly share credit, but you can tell if Bob's singing it, he definitely, you know, <laughs> yeah. wrote it. <laughs> or, um, and so um, a good friend of mine, so a good friend of mine went out and bought uh, the essential Bob Dylan, the two CD set, because um, that was fairly new at the at the time. And I remember we went through it and there's so many great songs on that. And of course that leads to, you know, getting the albums and lo and behold, I found find blood on the tracks and think that it's, you know, really powerful and gripping. And also in 2007, that was when the three CD uh, set called Dylan came out the one with the, with the red cover and mm-hmm. the black letters. Um, so I, it was almost perfect time for me to start getting into Dylan because Dylan's own company was like, Oh, so you want to get in this guy? Here's uh, you know, here, th- here's three CDs worth of material. And, uh, by the way, <laughs> we got you covered. <laughs> we got you covered. And here's a podcast hosted by, uh, Patty Smith and various, uh, you know, people, uh, talking about his career and keep in mind, I'm in middle school when all this is going down <laughs> in 2007. Oh God, I'm so old. I'm so old. <laughs> sorry um but but essentially like in middle school like my mind is being opened like i'm no longer the angsty seventh or eighth grade listen listening to lincoln park i'm (laughs) i'm discovering you know uh like these the these songs with poetry and rich lyrics and meanings that i had never really heard in any other songs i mean sure growing up listening to the beatles they have very you know rich and mature themes but when i'm a kid I don't grasp onto them. I'm just like, this song sounds good. I like it. So <laughs> I kind of have Dylan to thank for me realizing that lyrics can be more than just, you know, words that fit the rhythm of a song. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, before, before we move on, though, I do want to ask you about your words, uh, the Woolberries experimentation. Did your investigations of the other members of the Woolberries yield similar benefits or, or not so much? I would say similar, uh, especially if they had, you know, huge careers like Bob, like, um, you know, Tom Petty made, you know, music for, you know, 40, you know, so years before he, you know, passed away in 2017. Um, and of course, Electric Light Orchestra has put out a lot of stuff, um, haven't gotten into all of their stuff yet. Um, and Roy Oberson, of course, had a has had a career that goes back to 1954 or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of an equal mix of of each one. Uh, but with Dylan, there was a lot of variety in his um, career, which kind of kept me going back to it the most out of all of the Wilburys solo careers. Gotcha. Okay. I was just yeah. The Wil- I mean, it, it was that way for me. But the Wilburys were such an amazing uh, introduce introduction to Bob Dylan for so many people. Mm-hmm. So many people. I don't. I don't think they ever would have imagined that that it would have been such a a leaping off point. For people right. at that, you know, for for people who didn't know who he was, and and again, I came at it when those records were new. You were coming at it at the reissue stage, and it's still it's still working its magic. The Wilburys are still doing that thirty years after the records. It's still introducing Bob to new people. Yeah, when the reissues came out, I think I was vaguely aware of the Charlie Wilburys since it was a part of George Harrison's career, but I had no way to go out and get the albums. And you know, in 2007, YouTube's kind of a fairly new thing, so I can't exactly you know hop on YouTube and look it up without the video being you know kind of poor quality. Right, right, right. And so when these you know crisp new CDs uh, come out, you know it, the sound is just amazing, and the songs that Bob mainly sings, you know, even if you and like maybe. Maybe if you're not like loving Dylan 
as a whole, he's got the other guys to kind of back him up and kind of make the songs a little bit of a flavor, George flavor, Tom flavor, Jeff flavor, uh, Roy. So it definitely was a team effort, despite, you know, each song might be sung by a different member, mostly by the one who mostly wrote it. Oh, yeah. It's an amazing stew, those songs. You know, it really is five very distinctive ingredients. Now, okay, related to to Bob, though, you mentioned Blood on the Tracks really hooked you. If you don't mind me asking, around what age were you when you got to Blood on the Tracks? So in around 2007, 2008, I would have turned uh, 14 and 15 in those years, uh, respectively. And uh, the thing that kind of hooked me was... You know, here was a guy who was singing uh, songs that I had discovered on the either the Wilbury set or the three-disc Dylan set, who were singing songs that were kind of essentially like poetry that maybe didn't have to do anything with him per se. Like he was singing uh, Blown in the Wind or Mr. Tambourine Man, you know, all along the Watchtower, all those songs everyone knows so well. And then by the time I get to Blown on the Tracks, I'm noticing he's singing a lot more I and you and realizing that there's something going on here. And in that podcast that Patty Smith hosted, when there was an entire episode dedicated to Blood on the Tracks, like from minute one, you essentially learned that it's largely inspired by his divorce. And even though I was only 14, way too young to you know be married or anything like that. That's what I was kind of fascinated by, that what age did that hooked you, which is, it's a very adult record, and yet you were still kind of a kid. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I was at that age where I was ready to start being a little adult while still being, you know, mostly a kid. But I guess in a way, uh, Bob Dylan's music kind of helped me get started on the path of adulthood, basically. Because I would think maybe at that age, I I, I really can't remember that uh, that time for me because it was so long ago. But at 14, at 14, like the idea of getting your heart broken is kind of romantic. You know, it sounds very mm-hmm. adult. But once you've experienced it, you're like, nah, that's nah, it. Just sucks. It's, it's not. It's not particularly fun. But I, I really am fascinated that that record hooked you so profoundly at that at that young an age. Oh yeah, definitely. And especially also just the different sounds that he was making. Like, um, if you were to listen to his uh, career chronologically, you know, sure, you've got you know the basic stuff like guitars and harmonica, and you still get that on this album. But to hear uh, other sounds like for example on like um uh you're a big girl now the way that guitar opens is a very lovely uh sound and in the song that we're about to talk about maybe in the morning you know a really like fuzz yeah. guitar and the way that everything just it it howls at you and it just these were sounds that I hadn't heard in anything Dylan had done and so it just kind of wowed me that this guy who is not just a great poet for the sake of being a great poet. He's also being, you know, brutally honest and intimate. And I just want to hear, you know, what, what is he going through? What's, uh, what's going on with Bob here? Now I know you're, you're a music musician yourself. Have you, did you start that at that point or is that, did that come later? That actually was around that same time. So that was probably another factor as to why Dylan was, uh, you know, becoming uh, an influence on me at a young age. You know, I could pick up a guitar, at that age and, you know, play something simple that Bob would do, like it's all over now, baby blue. And so being able to just kind of add more songs into my, you know, repertoire that I just started, it just felt like it was all good timing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this song, well, before we get to the song, we're just a perfect segue, but I do, before we get off this, have you seen Bob live? Yes. I saw him 
back in 2018. And that's the only time that I've been able to uh, catch him. What did you think of it? I thought it was an amazing uh, experience. Uh, of course, you know, I have been a fan of Bob ever since, you know, that age in my life. Um, I understand that he is definitely getting old. In fact, you know, at the concert, uh, he barely stood up. I think he only stood up for uh, the last song and maybe one song in the middle, because most of the time he was sitting at the piano. Mm-hmm. And because he's sitting at the piano, a lot of his songs are arranged completely different. So it was almost like playing Guess That Bob Dylan Song at Bob Dylan's own concert. Well, that that's what it's like to go to a Bob Dylan concert. Uh, so, okay, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, though. Yeah, definitely. And this was um, six years removed from uh, Tempest. And so he definitely did not do anything new that's, you know, in the past couple of years that we, you know, record this episode, nothing from Rough and Rowdy Ways or anything. And he had had the three um, songbook albums prior to the concert in 2018, but I kind of knew he wouldn't do anything about uh, from those. And so just getting to hear an amalgamation of what could be played from 1962 to 2012, that 50 year time span, I uh, was excited. Do you remember anything that really popped for you that you were excited to hear? I remember he, uh, he opened the show with uh, Things Have Changed, mm-hmm. which has always been one of my favorites. In fact, uh, that was the last song on that uh, Essential Bob Dylan set and one of the last songs on the three CD Dylan set. And so uh, that song kind of had a sense of finality to it. I mean, it was like one of the last songs he recorded in the millennium slash start of the millennium. So to hear that start the concert was really cool. Getting to hear got to serve somebody as the closer was also pretty cool. And then interspersed here and there were uh, songs mostly from uh, Tempest uh, time out of mind um, and getting to hear blown in the wind and like a rolling stone, essentially done on piano in completely different arrangements was very cool. But of course I couldn't realize that's what the song was until about a verse in when I hear familiar <laughs> words and go, Oh my gosh, it's like a rolling stone and blowing in the wind. <laughs> How many roads? Oh yeah. Okay. I know what this is. I remember. I, All the I, older I, people are cheering. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little ashamed to admit. I, I did indeed have to do that. Be like, I know those words. What song is this? Tom, I still do that now. I've seen it 25 I know, I times. Know. I still do. What are you talking about? Don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> Okay, yeah, sorry. Well, let, let's talk about uh, Meet Me in the Morning. You mentioned sonically uh, this song is so different than anything uh, on Blood on the Tracks. Blood on the Tracks has a lot of musical variety. I think that was part of the reason that maybe some of the, some people might say, better material got left off because I think he was trying to go for a lot of different kinds of sounds You know, within this, this, this sort of kaleidoscope idea of, of relationships, mm-hmm. uh, but, but sounding very different. I will say this song has always been my least favorite off of the entire record. It doesn't mean I don't love it because I love mm-hmm. every single note <laughs> ever recorded for anything related to blood on the tracks. I loved everything off of the more blood, more track set. I certainly have committed every single, you know, every second of blood on the tracks to memory. So I do love this song, but it's always been my least favorite. And we'll get to that in a little bit, but sonically, it is so different. It's got that fuzzy guitar, as you mentioned. It's the only song on the record that has that to it. Mm-hmm. And I have to think that, because as we know, Bob recorded the original backing track, Bob and the band recorded the original backing track, and then he added the words, which would be known as Call Litter Blues. And then when he decided to get rid of all that and basically rewrite write an entire new song, 
he obviously liked the backing track enough to say, well, I'm just going to just reuse that. Now he's done that a couple of times. He did that for uh, someone's got a hold of my heart slash tight connection. He's done that here and there where he's realized, you know what? I like the tune, but I'm going to rewrite the song. And so obviously he very specifically wanted that kind of screaming sound at the top of the record, even though it is so different from everything that's come before it and will come after it, that he just said, all right, I'm just going to rewrite uh, the, you know, the song uh, to fit now what I want to say, but it's always been my least favorite. And I, again, we'll get into exactly why, but why did you want to talk about this one? See, I, I want to talk about this one because, you know, it is indeed so musically different. Um, and also it's, one of my favorite examples of Bob doing the blues. In fact, I might even go as far as say it's my favorite uh, song uh, that Dylan did in the vein of the blues. And I know there's a ton to pick from. Um, and at first, this one to me just sounds so, it sounds so raw. Like, especially if you listen to more blood, more tracks, the uh, bootleg series volume 14, um, you know, this is essentially recorded in one take and, you can tell that, you know, he's really just like going for it, given a fantastic vocal performance and the band is just right behind him. And even if I listen to the raw tape or the finished uh, mix that's on the album, I just get this feeling of like, this is a song that just sounds like it would be not necessarily birthed out of a jam, but a very controlled jam. Everyone is very tight. Um, there's, while there's not a lot of music going on in terms of like, you know, chord changes or things like that, it's a very standard 12 bar blues. Um, there's always something going in and out of each verse that keeps me invested, whether it's a way that Dylan sings a phrase or the way the pedal steel guitar uh, plays, the way that the drums might do a little shuffle. There's always something that moves this song at a very comfortable rhythm. And I say the word comfortable, obviously the lyrics are nothing, you know, but comforting but it's just it sounds like a mu musician and a group of musicians just being the best musicians that they can now i know that you've covered this yourself uh did you do is your version the uh electric or do you an electric or do it acoustically because i'm trying to imagine trying to replicate that <laughs> that screaming <laughs> guitar that's on this uh, on this song yeah, so uh, I did a cover of this song on acoustic guitar because I don't uh, currently own an electric guitar, um, but I do have a um, bottleneck slide, and I wanted to learn how to essentially play the riff of this song with the slide. That way, I could get that raw sound as if I were playing electric, but you know, I just have it on uh, acoustic. And I tried it a number of different ways, and the way that uh, it turned out, I was very indeed pleased with it. It sounds like uh, the kind of like old twenties or thirties blues where the, maybe the guitarist is a little too close to the microphone, but that kind of <laughs> gives it its, its charm. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the kind of vibe I was definitely going for. And when you have, even if it's just acoustic guitar, but you've got that bottleneck that really adds some power and volume to uh, your, your playing, uh, you want to just you know sing it with the same ferocity that uh, Dylan does, even if you don't have a whole band backing behind you. You pretty much have a band right here in your lap as you play the guitar. He sounds the vocal performance on this song. He sounds kind of you know, like younger than he sounds on the other songs. He sounds, yeah, like to me this would not have maybe not exactly, but to me the, this wouldn't have been that 
out of place on bringing it all back home because that song has so many blue songs on it. You know, mm-hmm. to me, it has that same kind of energy, which is, again, I find that interesting because the rest of the songs, he sounds so old beyond his years, kind of. And then this one, he sounds, even though he's singing about heartbreak, it's got that kind of youthful yelp that he was doing on those mid 60s records. Yeah, I definitely agree, especially like in, in the sequence of the album where this song uh, lay is like you said, it's the opener of side two of Blood on the Tracks. You know, th- so many songs prior to this one are essentially like either looking back at your relationship or looking back at people in your life. Like uh, you're going to make me lonesome when you go or, um, or idiot wind. This is the one where it sounds like he's singing in the present. He's singing like, you know, before we get to the rest of the songs in this album, where I will still be doing some looking back and whatnot. I want to just take some time out and sing about like right now. And I feel like that vocal delivery on this song is what makes it so different and also like so perfect. It's such a raw, I know I keep using that word a lot, but it, it, it is, it's, a, it's such a raw and honest sound of like this, this guy who's you know going through his divorce. And, you know, sometimes a musician, they, they might not want to put a divorce like too much in their music. They might do, you know, a couple songs here and there, but this to me is like, this is Bob, the person just m- like moaning and, almost crying that things aren't working out. Sure. He can keep his head on as level as possible and try to be the better man. But with beat me in the morning, he's essentially almost breaking down into screaming and tears. And I feel for the guy. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, before we move on to the other verses, I, I quoted the opening and he has the meet me in the morning 56th and Wabasha. And, you know, of course, all Dylan fans that sends them scrambling into well, where the hell's that? Where, where's 56th and Wabasha? <laughs> And, you know, I did, I did my own guilty. I did that myself. Uh, and, uh, there was, I found this one webpage that has, I don't know, maybe 5,000 words just on these lines alone, mm-hmm. <laughs> which it was a quite the deep dive. And it points out that there is no such thing as 56th and Wabasha. Wabasha is in Minnesota and mm-hmm. there is a highway, highway 56, uh, which cuts through the town of, of Wabasha. So there, that is a thing that you could do, but the official lyrics here on BobDylan.com say 56th TH as if it is a street. And mm-hmm. there is a 56th street in this, in that area, but it does not cross into Wa- or anywhere near Wabasha. So that is a um, logistical impossibility, geographical impossibility, which of course drives people nuts because they're like, well, what does that mean? You know, is it metaphorical? Is it literal? And I think there's something about what we just talked about that, that he sounds younger here because, you know, a lot of people have interpreted that blood on the tracks is not about just quote unquote, his divorce. It's about one person's relationship with women, in this case, women throughout Mm -hmm. his life. It's all the women of his life. You know, it's not just the one that's breaking his heart. Now it's about all relationships and about how, Potentially each person that he's met along the way is a manifestation of another person or something like that, depending on, you know, your, your belief system. But by mentioning a town from his mentioning a section of, of his hometown, basically that to me sets, you see, it's funny. You just said this to you, the song feels like it's in the present. And to me, the, the 56th and Wabasha immediately sets it in the past. It's, He's remembering something from his youth because he's thinking about his old days when he was in Hibbing. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good point. And actually, as we're speaking, I have a, a copy of the massive uh, Dylan book called All the Songs, and I appropriately have it open to the page talking about this song. And it does indeed say that Wabasha is a city in Minnesota about 190 miles from uh, Duluth. Uh, Dylan's birthplace. And there is indeed no intersection with uh, 56. So yes, if you take it on the on the street names alone, yes, it, you know, it does kind of put it in the past, but but a very distant past. Wabasha is not something that's just a few towns over from Duluth. It's 190 miles from uh, Duluth. And also the idea of him mentioning like a, a uh, a intersection that does not exist um, kind of adds a little bit of like sick humor in this song that I like a lot. We're almost like, like he wants to have someone meet him, but like he'll say a, a fictional place that not only puts the song in an impossible location, but like maybe he wants to get revenge or someone like, how about you meet me here? at this place that doesn't, doesn't exist. That way you know what it's like to have your heart broken. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, he could, the song continues on. He says, they say the darkest hour is right before the dawn. And then he says it again. Cause this is a blue song. Uh, but you wouldn't know it by me. Every day's been dark. And I, it's funny in the, the line here, it says every day's been darkness since you've been gone. I don't hear that. I hear him say every day's been darker since you've been gone. But again, as we know, BobDylan.com likes to change the lyrics and we'll get to that, uh, big example of that in a moment. Little rooster crowing, there must be something on his mind. Well, I feel just like that rooster. Honey, you treat me so unkind. Now, I, you know, I don't, it's not exactly known when he rewrote this song, when he rewrote Call Letter Blues into Mimi in the Morning. It did come later on in the process. Uh, I do remember reading that Mick Jagger came to visit him while he was recording Blood on the Tracks. Oh, and, no kidding. Yeah. And he actually, uh, did a cover of a song called Little Red Rooster as mm-hmm. a kind of tribute to Mick, who was watching him. Now, that cover maybe wasn't even recorded because it's never surfaced. It's not on the it's not on the set. Right. Uh, but apparently that he did it. And when I hear the word rooster, I always think, did he stick that in there because Mick was watching him when he did this? Or was that always supposed to be in there? No, I think that's a really good point to bring up because I have thought that as well. Yeah, that's a old blues song that the Rolling Stones indeed covered. And that's, you know, typical, you know, 12 bar blues. You can play it with a, a, a pedal steel or a slide guitar. Um, but I have always thought that as well. And, um, it definitely, at, you know, is kind of like a, a throwback to, you know, an older, you know, 12 bar blues song that this song is, you know, definitely taking, uh, inspiration from. And, uh, the, I've, and I've always loved in this verse in particular, where the first time he sings Little Rooster Crowin, there's this little fill from the guitar that almost sounds like it doesn't, doesn't sound like, like a rooster crowing, but it, it, it plays after he sings those words almost as if the guitar is emulating some kind of sound that a rooster mm. could make if a rooster could play guitar. It's not the direct sound of the animal, not like how, you know, Pink Floyd can make their guitars, you know, sound like whales or anything like that. Um, I just love that little bit after little rooster crowing, the guitar comes in with a little fill and Bob sings, there must be something on his mind. Um, I just, I've, I have indeed thought that a uh, little red rooster connection. And I do agree with you. Like if it, if it was played, it was likely not recorded because that whole promising set of more blood, more track 
because everything he recorded, we're going to put out. And so if it's not there, it's likely just not recorded. Or if it somehow is recorded, then by all means, give it to us. Yeah, everything. Ever come on, Columbia. <laughs> everything. Don't <laughs> don't be stingy. Come on. Uh, I think I know what you're talking about because I mean I've heard the song so many times. It's when he says the little rooster crowing, and you hear like the little kind of sound. Like yep, there's that's like the one. three little. I'm butchering it, obviously trying to replicate it. But just there's that. It's there's three little notes right after he says that. Right, little rooster crowing, and then it's now. Can I? All right. I I I, I have musicians on all the time, and I love it because. As I've said a million times, I'm not a musician. I can't speak to that. And I always try to understand this and I, I always fail at it. So like, okay, how forgive this is a stupid question phrased stupidly, but like, how does a guitarist? Cause that's not Bob playing the, that guitar, right? I don't think so. I think that's one of the members of the band. Yeah. According to the book here, there's uh, at least three other people on guitars. Right. Uh, yeah, Eric Weisenberg, Charles Brown the third, and um Buddy Cage. Okay. So when when he says that, little rooster crowing, and then you get the brown brown brown. Who how do you know to do that? Or do you not <laughs> do it? Do you just do it in the moment and you look listen later and you go, oh, that doesn't work, or oh, that does work. It's not you know, like how did how how does the, how does a guitarist know I have time? to put this little lick in before Bob starts singing again, or does he not know? Right. No, I think it was really just in the moment. And honestly, it probably wasn't anything that was in, intentional. This is just okay. me as the big fan that I am being like, Oh my God, I love that bit. It's like, it adds so much. And if I were to talk to Eric or Charles or buddy, whoever played it and ask them about it, they'd probably just be like, I don't know, man, I just did it in the moment. Gotcha. Um, okay. All right. <laughs> that's kind of what I'm thinking. <laughs> All right. Like you said, I've always been fascinated by that about like, how do they, and maybe I'm assuming more planning than is really there. You know, it mm -hmm. is just in the moment. And that's when you that's what you do the playbacks for. You know, you go back and you listen to it. And you go, oh, no, don't do that again. You know, <laughs> or Bob might have said, no, 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 do that. I like that a lot. You know, um, so okay, yeah. all right. All right. It's fascinating. So now on BobDillon.com, there is a verse here that is not on the blood on the tracks version there. You do hear it on one of the versions on the bootleg set. But not on the finished, uh, finished, not on the re as released version. And that, that verse is the birds are flying low, babe. Honey, I feel so exposed. Well, the birds are flying low, babe. Honey, I feel so exposed. Well, now I ain't got any matches and the station doors are closed. This gets to the reason I say this is my least favorite song on the record. Again, I love the song. Don't get me wrong, everybody. But, you know, against the peerless masterpieces that, are on this record it's to me a little less of one but the reason this song has always not resonated with me the way most of the others do is i feel that and especially when you can compare it to call letter blues i think this song is the most forgive this word generic in terms of its language it's to me very kind of generic blues language and it's obviously what he was going for that is obviously what he wanted because Call Letter Blues to me is incredibly personal. And he took all that out. He took mm -hmm. all that out and did this. So he was clearly going for that. Of I want for this song at this point in the record to be something a little more generic. But that to me, why it doesn't land as much as some of the other songs. The other songs feel more specific and therefore personal. And mm -hmm. they get under my skin more. And this verse, the one that's been left out, 
to me is more like the call letter blues version because it's got the honey i feel so ex- honey i feel so exposed to me is a very powerful line coming from the man knowing where he was in his life at this point in his career and the fact that he then took it out tells me he really wanted this song to be more like a a classic blues song using kind of phrases from other blues songs, little red, you know, little rooster crowing, that kind of stuff. And that's why the song hasn't quite landed on me the way it does the other ones, but that's just always just been my take on it. No, I think that's, that's very interesting, especially given how many times, you know, he has rewritten and re-recorded the songs for this album. I mean, you know, heck he did the whole album, you know, he, he, he had to redo half the album because, you know, for so many different reasons, whether he wasn't satisfied with it or the, the sound was a little too, uh, you know, generic all the way through on the, on the original test pressing or, you know, whatever the reason. But it, it is interesting to go back to other songs on this album and look at where they came before and how they are directly personal. Like, take, for example, the original version of Idiot Wind. Um, mm. It's it's a much more. And, and and I'm quoting someone here. I'm quoting someone on the Bob Dylan podcast who said that the original version sounds like a more angry and direct song at another person. Mm-hmm. Whereas you look at uh, Blow on the Tracks, Idiot Wind, a lot of that anger is still there, but it's kind of brought in a more general term that essentially anyone can identify it as opposed to uh, the bootleg series, Idiot Wind is all, you know, me and you and listener, you better, you know, understand what's going on here <laughs> where oh, I was blown the tracks. It's like, you know, Hey listener, I'm mad. Maybe not so much at this person directly, but maybe you can relate to this. And, you know, heck he did that in uh, tangled up in blue a little bit differently. You know, it originally starts as more of a, he and she song. And it becomes more of a, you know, I and her song. And so it's definitely nothing unusual for this album, but it all, it is always interesting to find, the verses or the points of views that change from, you know, original concept to we're working it out. And then the record is released, even inclu- including this, uh, this verse that's on bobdylan.com, but not in the uh, finished product. Like you mentioned, what did you think of, uh, what do you think of that verse? What do you think of that other, well, what, what do you think of the other versions that are on blood on the, on more blood, more trucks? Cause there's a lot of them. There's just, some of them are unfinished, <laughs> but I mean, they certainly, he certainly kept trying with this one. You know, he didn't, he didn't just do one or two takes. He did like seven or eight. He really kept working it. Yeah, he certainly did. And the thing that I've loved about this song, just in general, kind of going back to why you originally asked me why I wanted to talk about this one is that listening to all those different takes on more blood, more tracks, this sounds like a song that whether it's him doing it alone or with a band, this is one of those songs that only could sound one way. Like even when he's doing it as himself with maybe the bass player behind him, you know, he's, it still has that riff in the guitar and it's nothing like where like say up to me where he tries strumming it different, you know, rhythms or uh, a song like tangled up in blue where it starts with just guitar and then it ends up, you know, being a whole band thing. Meet Me in the Morning and maybe Buckets of Rain are like the only two songs from the sessions that I feel like could only be done one way, especially since both of them have, you know, those riffs in them. Doing them any other way would essentially be not necessarily useless, but just it wouldn't work. 
So I love listening to the other versions of Meet Me in the Morning. As a matter of fact, I was very proud uh, to pick up uh, in 2012. He released the Record Store Day exclusive single for uh, Duquesne Whistle. Right, right. And the B-side was an unreleased acoustic version of Meet Me in the Morning. Now, of course, here we are, you know, years later, all the acoustic versions of that song have come out legit. But in 2012, this was the first time anyone was ever hearing it, you know, legitimately. And so getting to hear that was, you know, a real treat and hearing everything he's done on the more blood, more tracks, whether it's this song or call letter blues is also a treat. And especially if you take into account the track listing. So in the, if you look at the more blood, more tracks, complete track listing, you know, we, we assume that it's, you know, in chronological order, he actually starts uh, with call letter blues, take one. Then the next one is meet me in the morning, take one, which ended up being the final, uh, our version just mixed down a bit and then he goes back and does call letter blues take two and then a few more call letter blues and then goes and then goes and tries to meet me in the morning acoustic a bunch of times before ultimately deciding that the first take he got to meet me in the morning was you know good to go and that's something that just fascinates me about bob in general whether it's him or his producer or his musicians just said to him hey man you know you can go back and you know just uh pick something that just you know, was awesome. You know, we hear him struggle so many times to get songs right. And when he gets it right, he gets it right. But in a case like this one, this is one of the exception. He got it right the first time and then kept working on it. So it's so cool to just realize, man, this first version, that's it, man. <laughs> you go for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, other than the the one version on more blood that features that other verse, which is sort of a finished version, the rest of them aren't really finished. So he was, you know, I think he kind of, I don't, and again, I don't know what order they came in. I don't know whether he got this one, the, the album version first, and then kept fiddling with it and just realized now I got it right in the first, or it was the other way around mm-hmm. where it was, he kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. And then he finally was like, all right, I got it. Uh, again, I find it interesting that he decided to leave that verse out, you know, that he very specifically left it out. And then for whatever, whoever decides these things, they put it back in for the Bob Dylan.com as if that's sort of the official version, even though he doesn't sing that on the, on the record. Um, yeah. what, do you th- what do you think of that verse? Would you have liked to have heard that in the, in the, the final quote unquote version? It's hard to say because obviously I love the song as it is already. Um, but you know, had it been there from the first time I would have heard this song, I would have, you know, just included it as part of the song just in general. But I find it interesting that, you know, this is the only verse that is cut and yet, to, to, to my eyes, you know, looking at the lyrics as we're talking about it, it doesn't feel too out of place from the other lyrics. Um, but you did talk, talk about how he sings, honey, I feel so exposed. Mm-hmm. And that just feels very, very raw and honest. Again, going back to those words, uh, excuse me. And that's something that is so indeed raw and honest that, I could see I would immediately have related to that had the song had the verse had had the song had that verse to you know to begin with but also looking at it individually I could say you know what I can see why he took it out it's also my theory as to why he took out up to me completely up to me is like so honest that it's dark uh mm-hmm. and this verse is like it's the closest verse that gets that to that dark territory that I can see why it was cut and again, we don't know why it was cut. Maybe he didn't like it. Maybe the band played something as he was singing that first. And he's like, eh, that didn't really work well. But the point is, like, had it been there from the beginning, I would have been fine with it. But 
He also cut it. I'm also fine with it. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's always going to be the alternate because you didn't grow up with it because it's not the one on the record. And that's the one you heard first. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you tend to always judge everything that came after as an alternative to the thing you hit the thing you heard first. It's just the way it is, you know. Um, So, okay. well, then the song continues. He says, well, I struggled through barbed wire, felt the hail fall from above. Well, you know, I even around the hound dogs. Honey, you know, I've earned your love. And then he wraps it up with look at the sun sinking like a ship. Look at the sun sinking like a ship. Ain't that just like my heart, babe, when you kissed my lips? And then they just really let the electric guitar. That guy just goes crazy. (laughs) He goes on. He really kind of leans into it. I will say of the verses that are in the, the blood on the tracks version, this final verse is my favorite one. There's something about comparing the sun sinking like a ship. Because it's like, well, the sun does sink, I guess. That's kind of a grim way of putting it. Most people regard the sun as setting, not sinking, because sinking is kind of a bad thing. But of course, here it's got that kind of dark cast to it that the sun is sinking. It's going away. And then that, you know, ain't that just like my heart, baby? And I guess I love for how angry this album is, uh, at least on most of the songs, especially Idiot Wind, as you just mentioned. I like that he says, ain't that just like my heart, babe, when you kiss my li-? I kind of like that slightly comical way of saying it, you know, like he's kind of not even all that man. Ain't that just like my heart, babe, when you kiss my like it's it's a little flip kind of. And I, I like that, again, just as a tonal change, uh, which, again, is a nice contrast to the the backing music, which seems so kind of like, Neh! like, you know, purposely almost like fingernails on a chalkboard kind of thing but i liked i just like that when you kiss my lips and then he just fades out and so it's a great very powerful way to open up side two of the record oh absolutely especially with the way the song you know opens with just a guitar and then everyone slowly comes in bass and drums and especially the electric guitar like once it starts it pretty much just doesn't stop this is you know definitely one that was it sounds great opening uh side two and also kind of leaving you uh, interested to hear the rest of the songs on side two, especially with that uh, final verse. That final verse to me is, you know, him, him talking about like, look at that sun sinking like a ship. Again, like you said, people would often, you know, describe the sun as it's setting, not sinking. But the song starts by saying, meet me in the morning when the sun, you know, comes up. And now the morning is falling away. The sun is, it's not setting, it's sinking, meaning that, you know, mornings don't last. You know, relationships may not last. Even heartbreak doesn't last um, because, you know, hopefully you'll move on and find, you know, new and better things. Here he's singing like, you know, look at that sun sinking like a ship, almost like, uh, you, you know, that, that, that phrase, you know, like a car crash, it's so horrible, but you can't look away. Yeah. You know, like, like if you're watching a ship sink, like it's a horrible thing, but you don't want to look away from it either. So here he basically is saying like, my heart is like this ship, like, you know, maybe you've broken it or like when, when you kiss me, it feels like a wonderful thing, like that feeling you would get of like watching something beautiful, but it's actually, you know, horrifically beautiful. Um, he's kind of had that, that lingering feeling of uh, his babe, um, you know, kissing his lips and he'll always carry that feeling, but unfortunately he'll always carry that feeling like a beautiful ship, which is now sinking. It's a lot of uh, very loaded imagery for a very short line. Cause you can imagine, you know, the ship splintering, you know, mm-hmm. and breaking apart. Why, you know, it's sinking because of that. So, yeah, I really do love that, the, that final 
verse. I love the way that it, it ends with that. And the, the, every version uh, ends with that. Because again, he knew that that's... It, again, as, aside from that one verse, this remained pretty much the same. Now, there are alternate uh, lyrics in one of the notebooks mm-hmm. that he had when he wrote this. In fact, one of the... um. One of the verses uh, that didn't make it is it says, meet me in the morning. We could have a ball. My grandfather had a farm, but all he ever raised was the dead. He had the keys of the kingdom, but all he ever opened was his head. Meet me in the morning. It's the brightest day you ever saw. We could be in Kansas by the time the snow begins to thaw. So there you go. He's getting that back. That's an amazing bunch of words, but I can't picture it in this song because the lines are so much longer and so much more complicated than what he ended up using in the final version yeah that's such a you know a a wacky out of their verse and again going back to the verse that was left out about the birds like had that verse you just read been in the song from minute one you know i probably again would have been okay with it but here i am you know years later you know removed from it that i want to go back and look at it be like that verse just feels like it's so it's it's so otherworldly in a way that doesn't fit this song like, you know, he, he talks about um, his grandfather's farm. And for me, as someone on the outside, I'm like thinking, hey, don't bring him into this. He has nothing to do with this. You know, this is all about you and the person who you're singing about. So it wouldn't have fit out of place if I grew up listening to it. But here I am years later and thinking that's uh, that's that line is something else. <laughs> now, live wise, uh, this song has been performed once. Once, One yes. time. It's the uh, last thing that that this book mentions in the page talking about the song. <laughs> September 19th, 2007. Now, that would be special enough that he chose, you know, first of all, that uh, any of the Blood on the Truck songs have not gotten extensive live outings. Uh, but uh, but we know that some of them have not. But again, it's only been done one time. And the one time he did it, he did it with Jack White. He decided to do it with Jack White. And you can find this version on YouTube. And uh, to my ears, I really can't even hear Bob at all uh, <laughs> singing. It's uh, He lets Jack White just pretty much uh, do it. And obviously, Bob and Jack White have a, you know, a quite friendly relationship. No surprise. And this kind of blue song is the stuff that Jack White could sink his teeth into big time. So it's oh, not yeah. surprising that uh, this would be something Jack White would want to play. But it's kind of amazing for a, a song. I. I mean, it's not surprising. Nothing surprises me anymore. Everything about Bob is so surprising that nothing is surprising anymore, I guess is the way you put it. But it does seem a shame that this has never gotten a live outing outside of that one one off. That's like this is a masterpiece of a song. What are you doing, Bob? Yeah. And especially this is the kind of song that is so musically simple with a 12 bar blues like, you know, any band that he's with uh, could have performed it even when he was touring with the Grateful Dead. Yeah. You know, those guys, you know could jam on this song for 12 and a half minutes. And, you know, this is, it seems like it's such a, a, a song that was almost like meant for the stage. Uh, but you're right. It just, it hasn't been done aside from that one time. Yeah. That's just, it's like, really, you would think you would just mine everything off of blood on the tracks. When you've got that good of a record, you would just be like, everything is going to get an outing, especially since this is such a, a blues song i think would be fun to play you know i think if you're that kind of musician this would be a fun song to play especially if you get a chance to really rip into the guitar solo and kind of replicate maybe what they did on the record but no one time that was it 
so uh, this is something that, you know, again, he worked on, he devoted almost an entire session of the Blood on the Tracks New York sessions to this song. There was a period apparently the 23rd and the 25th. Uh, those are the dates where at least one of those days, it was all of this. He just spent the whole day just working on this. So obviously this was something he, you know, once he decided to to jettison the call letter blues version, he really wanted to keep working at this. And obviously he said he finally got the version that he liked, but yeah, uh, never got you know, not even on the hard rain tour where he was letting things rip guitar wise, but uh, no, that's, that's it. Now, did you go listen to the live version? Uh, I actually haven't heard it yet, uh, mainly because, you know, in most of the uh, recordings that are out there, which are pretty much just like all the same recordings, uh, you know, you can barely hear Dylan. And of course, me being the fan that I am, I want to hear him. But if 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 no better recording exists, then it's what we have. And so uh, it's the one that I will stick with um, listening, but it's not one that I play a lot. Right, right. It's well, it's funny. It's like it's not even like you can't even hear. Him. I don't even think he's singing. I think he's just standing off to the side, letting Jack White sing everything. Uh, so I'm like, I, you know, I keep waiting for Bob to duet with him or, or right, trade, exactly. trade verses. Like, I have that version of where they sing uh, uh, Ball and Biscuit and that they trade off, you know, mm-hmm. but here he's only just letting Jack White. So it's like the one time he's doing the Blood on the Track song and he's standing off to the side, like, all right, Bob. <laughs> So, but you know, that's Bob for you. Mm-hmm. That so. is indeed. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's a terrific song. I don't, by even saying it's my least favorite on the record is, is saying, you know, well, it's like the worst pizza you've ever had. It's still pretty good. You <laughs> oh, know? Yeah. And I still do love this song. And he clearly was going for something very specific in terms of pulling back a little I feel like the song just before it, You're Going to Make Me Lonesome When You Go, is so personal. Mm-hmm. And then this is a little more removed. And then he kind of even removes himself even further with the next song, which is, of course, Lily Rosemary, because that's a story song. The yeah. only real story song on the record. And then for the, you know, after that, then he kind of goes back to the more personal stuff. But he was trying to vary it a little. And I think that's part of the reason this record works as well as it does, that it's it has such an all. I've said this before about Blood on the Tracks. I feel like in some ways, Blood on the Tracks presents every possible feeling you can have about heartbreak. Every iteration of a feeling a human being can have about that experience. He covers. Yeah. He leaves nothing on the table. And I think that's, there, yes, this song is less personal, but I think that's important to have that angle on this record as opposed to every song being a ripped from your soul confession. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I love the album so much is that, you know, anyone who goes through a breakup, you know, not only do you start questioning the things that maybe you could have done in the past, but you start to question what you're going to do moving forward and also just start questioning things in life in general, even reflecting as something as small as like your hometown, or uh, in this case, a place that's, you know, 190 miles away from your hometown, you know, you just have all these thoughts about like, like even just looking at something like like a sunset or um or or birds or or roosters all of which are in this song of course you know like to sing something like triggers an emotion in you or a feeling or a memory or maybe something that someone said or a place that you've been and all of these things are going to be constantly flooding your mind because during a breakup your mind is just flooded with overwhelming thoughts about everything and 
someone did say this in the Bob Dylan podcast, uh, you know, sure. It's, it's easy to look at this album and say that, you know, this song or this album is, you know, based on his you know marriage and divorce, but that doesn't make something strictly autobiographical. You know, right. you could be, lis- you could be listening to something that someone said in a restaurant or passing on the street and say, Oh, even though I didn't come up with what they said, that relates to what I'm feeling. Or you could read something in a book or see something on TV in a movie. And you now have made it autobiographical without it, you know, coming from your own soul. It's coming from someone else's words or a different source. And me discovering this album at 14 and 15, like realizing like, oh, so songwriters don't have to just always be writing about like what they're feeling or <laughs> what they're you know, thinking or saying. Like they could just like listen, like open their ears up to different people. Like, is that allowed? <laughs> <laughs> you could do that? You know, exactly. Go to song so, jail? What? Right. And so that was def- like this song uh, and this whole album was definitely something that helped me develop my musical uh, palette and taste as opposed to, you know, songs being about I love you or I, I, I feel this about this person or this event or th- this thing or this place. You know, an album like Blood on the Tracks is so it all fits together without it all being strictly autobiographical. I mean, heck, the next song on the album, Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. You know, Bob's not even really in that song. It's just a, you know, full on story song. And even as a 14, 15 year old, I wasn't questioning going like, oh, what is this song doing here? It doesn't fit. I was so developed in Dylan at that time. I was like, you know what? This fits. I might not know how it fits at 14 (laughs) or 15, but it does. In Bob, we trust. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I love that song so much. Uh, (laughs) So um, what? Okay, I have a question I want to ask you, but before before I get to that, I just want to think I wanted to mention about Blood on the Tracks. When I say that, I feel like Blood on the Tracks is such a complete meal on this subject, on this towering subject, this universal subject that virtually everybody experiences at some point. If you haven't, you're lucky. Mm-hmm. But usually everybody experiences this. And uh, a bunch of episodes ago, uh, my pal Jason MD and I did the show on Up to Me, and we were talking about how you know, God, it's such a shame that up to me isn't on the record. And it's it's not because Blood on the Tracks is missing anything that up to me would have filled. It's just because up to me is so good that you can't imagine it not being on a record. Mm-hmm. But it's not because Blood on the Tracks is missing anything. You know, if up to me had never existed, you just, you just, just didn't exist. Blood on the Tracks would still work as beautifully as it does, because to me, it is in a lot of ways a final statement on this incredibly huge topic. He mm-hmm. he just fi- manages to find every iota of feeling and thought you could have about that subject. Now that said, I do want to ask you, and you can feel free to not answer this question, Tom, because it's, I didn't, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but since listening to this record, have you yourself experienced any sort of heartbreak to, you know, in your personal life? You don't have to get into details or even tell me at all, but I am sort of curious. Well, uh, I, we, I will say yes, but not in any kind of like relationship uh, status. I mean, I, I've had my heart broken in, uh, in different ways where like maybe a friend has moved away or even passed away, or I didn't get that job that I really wanted or, um, I didn't 
uh, or or even something like even a celebrity uh, passing away, even if I don't know them personally, I feel like some, their music has had such a big place in my heart, like Tom Petty, which we mentioned you know, at the beginning of the show. When he passed away, I felt heartbroken. So the answer is, is yes, but not to the extent that you know, Bob had going on in his personal life at this time. Okay, fair enough. I mean, first, I'll say lucky you. I'm glad. I'm glad you have not experienced this particular kind of thing. I mean, I got I heard this record when I was what I was 19, 20, I guess, 21. And I had not experienced that kind of pain. And I certainly loved the record. I knew how brilliant it was. Uh, but then it it it's I don't want to say I appreciate it more because that's kind of a little gatekeepery and I don't like that. But I will say that after having experienced heartbreak of the kind on this record, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, oh, shit. Uh, you know, it really <laughs> just kind of hits you up on the side of the head in a way you weren't kind of expecting. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a reason why it is still people just I don't I don't know anybody that doesn't love blood on the tracks. I, I you know Bob fans are, are a contentious lot and we have differing opinions on things, but I don't know anybody that doesn't love blood on the tracks. It's just like a universal like, yeah, it, that's 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 one of the ones, man. That's just totally it. So, um, like I said, it's just a it's a marvelous song. It's amazing that he was able to kind of create two songs two completely different songs yeah. out of the same backing track. I mean, that is just, just as a um, piece of singing, just as, just as a, just as an artifact of being able to f- concoct phrases that will fit a pre-assigned beat, you know, tune is just amazing. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just absolutely remarkable that he could craft two complete songs out of one, essentially a backing track. Uh, that is, and that, also too that also too i believe i just said that but that goes against a lot of what bob's kind of whole thing has been when he's recording because he likes that live feeling of everybody playing at the same time everybody reacting off one another i mean he's been willing to put up with less than perfect takes if it captures the spontaneity and the verve that he's looking for but in this case he is he's singing along to a pre-recorded track that's already been done and yet you would never know it it's amazing yeah i mean it's i mean it's something that we as uh musicians or even you know aspiring musicians if anyone wants to be a musician just look at it and just say well heck man you know often we'll just think like you know a song's got its own you know unique feel to it or instrumentation and like that's it that's all you get and meanwhile bob is able to just you know go go all mad scientists and you know <laughs> take the gel from meet me in the morning and put some off the side and just you know make another song because why not yeah it's un- unreal just absolutely uh unreal the stuff he was able to conjure and like i said i i can only imagine being in the studio with him or being like you know like a columbia executive and overhearing some of the stuff and he must have been like my what the hell you know i mean the guy's already been amazing for what, you know, 12, 13 years at this point, but then to hear that stuff. And uh, the more Blood More Tracks set is just so illuminating in so many ways of just hearing him noodle with stuff and kind of just work it all out in his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just, uh, it's such an incredible high wire act. And then that's not even counting what we know is that he decides to rip up half the record and re-record it when he flies off to Minneapolis. Right. It's 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 that classic example of like any other artist, like if 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 they were presented the original you know test pressing or acetate of Blum the Tracks, 
any other artist would say, man, I would kill to, you know, make an album like that. That's a career and record. Then, That's a career defining record that the, you just made there. Right. And then, and then, and then, and then Bob in his infinite wisdom just says, well, I'm glad you like it. I don't. <laughs> and just goes and records half of it. Like, it's an amazing thing to always listen to early versions of any songs by any artist. Like, it's like, man, like, obviously the, you know, the, the finished version that we, the fans judge it by, you know, more than often, like nothing, you know, pales in comparison. The, the, the final statement is the final statement. It's amazing. But there's so many early versions of songs, or even whole albums where we're like, man, if I were a musician, I'd nice to be four or five, you know, give me that acetate. Like, like I will put that out on, on my own. Like I would love to have that album. And then to have Bob go and record half of it to being like, man, like, why would you do that? And then he does it and be like, you know what, man, I don't know why I questioned you in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, you know, ultimately he said it's his name on it. So he's got to be happy with it, but uh, just an absolutely amazing tune. And I'm so glad we finally got around to talking about it. My goodness. So, well, Tom, thank you for doing the show, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me. This was uh, a lot of fun. Why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? So uh, people can find me on YouTube uh, by simply searching uh, my name, Tom Rutia. That's U-R-R-U-T-I-A. Um, I have uh, two YouTube channels. Uh, one that's just, uh, you know, my name, and that's where you can find the cover of Meet Me in the Morning. Um, but then my second YouTube channel uh, is a, a podcast that I've run uh, for a number of years with some uh, good friends um, called Triple Threat. We talk about um, music on that show, uh, namely our favorite uh, bands. There's three of them, the Beatles, the Who, and Pink Floyd, and there's three of us. And so that's kind of like why the show has that uh, name. So you can search Triple Threat and my name and you'll probably find it. Or if you just search my name and find my channel, you'll find a link to Triple Threat in the channel's page. So one way or another, I'm, I'm, I'm around. All right. Very cool. Now, before we sign off, I have to ask you the standard exit question. Uh, if there's any Bob recording session, anything, albums, audiobooks, you know, anything that he has ever said, theme time radio hour that you could sit in on and just be a fly on the wall for, what would it be? Oh, man. Um, I know at the beginning of the show, we were talking about the traveling Wilburys. And so like, I don't want to just cheat and say that because I'm getting five, you know, glorious That's artists. Cheating. Is there, there's, no, <laughs> do what there's no wrong answer. Here. There's no cheat. There's no such thing as cheating in this question. Yeah. But I mean, like, but they also filmed a lot of those sessions. So like, you know, it's hard for me to say, I'd love to be a fly on the wall because I can just watch all those sessions and, and just are already feel like I am a fly on the wall. So in terms of like something that we don't have any like footage for or photographs, um, I would have loved to have uh, been there around 1970 or so uh, when Bob first hooked up with uh, George Harrison and they did those recordings, uh, I think in Woodstock. Um, there's a couple of them that have surfaced on another self-portrait mm-hmm. where George is accompanying him on um, guitar. We don't have a lot of photos of Bob and George and me being the big Bob and Beatles fan that I am, I would love to just see the two of them just be good friends because, you know, it's so easy to look at their, those two careers and think, man, those two guys, you know, like how did those be- two become friends? But they just, that they really were. And I mean, I say, I say that only because like, sometimes you picture Bob Dylan as being like 40 feet tall, like no <laughs> one should, no one could ever, you know, be at his level. So, uh, so I guess I'll say Charlie Wilburys. Uh, and then for some, we don't have any footage or, vi- or a video for just him and George just, in 1970 or at all times. I love those guys. 
Fair enough. I think it's from that session. They weren't really sessions. It was just those guys just kind of banging around. Um, come those photos of Bob and George playing tennis. Yes, I've seen those. Uh, <laughs> I love those. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun to watch just to sit there and watch these two guys? Like, were they any good? Were they terrible? <laughs> was it was it comical to watch two of the greatest musical geniuses of the latter half of the 20th century just lob balls out of, you know, like, out? Yeah, you know, were they <laughs> argumentative about it? Were they, you know, footfall? You know, did they get pissed? Who knows? I mean, based on the photos, it looks like they're not playing it like, great no um, it looks so, like they're trying to knock the ball like out of the park or something they're like swinging it so hard yeah so you know what rob forget my, my answers i already mentioned i want to be at the george and bob dylan tennis match <laughs> That'd be great that would be amazing absolutely so so uh okay well said, those are all good answers tom so again thank you so much for doing the show man i really appreciate it uh, of course everybody if you want to find back episodes of this show you can find them all on our website which is fireandwaterpodcast.com you can subscribe to the show in any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, of which Pod Dylan is a part, please go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutchell, George Doherty, Rocky Meckle, Paul Ruther, and Henry Bernstein for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Got a slip, slide, slide there. Bob, you want to play slide and do it because it sounds great. Who can play slide? You. No, I don't want to play slide.